What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamota and Danny Abdeljabar. Danny, how's it going, man? How did you survive the old hurricane? <laughs> I'm chilling, man, as per usual. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get to talk about it because we had Scott on the show in between, but uh, yeah, survived Hurricane Fiona. Uh, it was it was a bit of a trip, man. Um, we lost power and water for several days, and then after that, there was just like these intermittent periods where the power would cycle on and off, and it was definitely a pain in the ass. Fun fact, uh, my uh, girlfriend's parents were in town during the hurricane, <laughs> um, and uh, we we made the best of it. <laughs> like at one point we, when we were watching the radar apps and there was like a little lull in the wind and rain and we went to Condado, which is like the touristy strip. Cause that was the only place that had power at the time. And we went to a restaurant and stayed there for like four hours. Uh, and it was full of just the craziest set of people, just like tourists that were bored as hell in their hotel rooms without power, local Puerto Ricans, just all kinds of crazy nonsense and it was it was it was kind of a shit show but it was kind of fun um yeah i mean it sounded like a freaking jet fighter was just parked outside my window revving the engine it was absolutely nuts but thankfully i guess yeah, not for the people in the south thankfully for me we, we lost we didn't um get hit too hard i think el junke probably broke up a lot of those the wind bands uh but in the south they they got utter destruction crazy flooding like whole towns were like just ruined um you ever you see that video of the bridge getting taken away by the uh by the water no like i have a bridge it was like this bridge and it just literally got swept away by the water it was nuts um but yeah it was it was absolutely insane i'm very grateful and uh, fortunate to not have had you know any major major impacts except for some loss of power and water for a little while but you know i'll take that over what they got in the south and Furthermore, I'll take that over the the shit that the folks got in in Fort Myers and and places in Southwest Florida for Hurricane Ian. Hurricanes are no joke, man. Crazy. Yeah, man. Um, were you in New York during Hurricane Sandy? <clears throat> I was. I actually slept through it. <laughs> you slept through it. Yeah, <laughs> that's the only like real devastating hurricane that I've been through. And to be completely honest. I didn't really go through it because where I was living in the uh, Upper East Side of Manhattan, the storm just kind of missed the Upper East Side. Like we were, we were right. further, we were far enough from the water where, or at least where I was living, you know, we were on a grid that flooded. never went out, and mm -hmm. uh, we were far enough from the water where there was no risk of property damage or anything like that. Uh, so we kind of uh, we lost power for maybe fifteen minutes, and that was the extent of it. And that was really it, but it was it was surreal because the Upper East Side in Manhattan was one of the only places in New York that did not lose power. So a lot of people were going there to like go out. I remember it was Halloween. It was around Halloween, mm -hmm. so like people yeah, were having yeah. Halloween Governor parties. Governor Chris Christie canceled uh, Halloween that year, and I was pissed off. <laughs> yeah, but I went to a um, I went to the season opener Knicks game. And mm -hmm. um, just driving down to uh, to Madison Square Garden, it was just pitch black. The city, I was like, "Man, this is crazy." Um, but all of my friends who lived in Long Island and Jersey and, and just you know outside of Manhattan, they went through. It sucked, you know. Like the yeah. power went out. They they didn't get power in some cases for like a month. 
they're waiting outside, waiting outside. There was like lines of people uh, outside anywhere with like a generator, like a Starbucks just to charge their phones and and things Mm -hmm. like that. It was tough. My neighbor's house caught on fire after that. Not because of the hurricane, but because of like the power outage. I I guess they were like burning candles or some shit and their house caught on fire after. So it was like crazy. Damn, that's crazy, man. Well, I'm happy you're safe. And uh, I'm happy that the hurricane is uh, already passed before I come <laughs> there in a couple of days. I'll be there. Yeah. I guess this. I guess this episode is going to be released uh, probably sometime early next week on Monday. So I'll actually be on my way back from Puerto Rico. Today's Wednesday. No, it's Tuesday. Is it Tuesday or Wednesday? Tuesday. Tuesday. It's Tuesday, October fourth. So we're recording this about five, six days uh, earlier than when we usually release them. So I should be back going home from Puerto Rico if all goes to plan but um, seeing my good friend Danny and uh, bringing the wife and uh, hopefully Henry you're you're my first repeat customer by the way yeah <laughs> so I'll that's be, really awesome I'll, I'll be a three-peat customer most likely but yeah I mean obviously want to see you and, and hang out with you and, and you and your gal and uh, you know also get a chance to go to the beach before it turns uh, cold here in New York, yeah. but all right, let us let's jump back into it because um, you know we, we we spoke to Scott last week, but prior to that, we were having a very interesting conversation about Puerto Rico. Um, by the way, did you hear about Joe Biden? Joe Biden is an honorary Puerto Rican, or I heard, he was raised yeah. by Puerto Ricans. Excuse me, honorary Puerto Rican was what the tour guide the 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 cave tour guy told me. He said, "I'm an honorary <laughs> Puerto Rican." After yeah. uh, doing a, a cliff dive, um, but Joe Biden was raised by by Puerto Ricans, which I found kind of yeah. humorous. But um, I guess last or two weeks ago, and we've been you know Puerto Rico has been a, a topic of, of of interest because there's so much hidden history there that most Americans and I include myself are just completely unaware of. So I love having these conversations with you because you know since you've been living there. You know, you've just kind of been uncovering this weird history. And I guess, why don't we start off by you just summing up last episode? Yep, for sure. So in the last episode, we talked uh, at great length about, I think, five or six stories uh, of how the United States bombed Puerto Rico. And uh, it's just a crazy ass story, uh, and we did things a little bit differently in that in that episode where I just told you the stories without any of the background context. Uh, so to fill you in, there was um, a couple of uh, uprisings in 1950 on or around October 29th, and they lasted for about four days. Different cities in Puerto Rico, each of them revolted against the U.S. to try to go for independence, and the U.S. responded by using. T-47 Thunderbolt planes and dropping 500-pound bombs on them, among other things. Um, And this resulted in kind of a tit-for-tat thing where, you know, then there was a giant gunfight at a a hair salon, a a barbershop, really, uh, where it was like 40 guys, 40 police officers and and National Guardsmen shooting on one barber inside of a barbershop, and this lasted for three hours straight. Uh, We talked about how... After you that, missed, you missed, you missed the best part. This guy lived after being shot. Oh yeah, he, know, he lived. I didn't times. want to spoil it for the folks that that um <laughs> that might not have listened to that episode. Go back and listen to it. It's freaking crazy. 
Um, and then a, a day later, uh, you know, after all this shit is going down, the uh, two Puerto Rican nationalists attempt to kill President Harry Truman in Washington, uh, which is nuts because, you know, up until this point, the U.S. news was trying to say that this was a, quote, incident uh, between Puerto Ricans, trying to downplay the fact that they were dropping bombs on Puerto Rico. But at this point, now they couldn't say, hey, this is just an incident between Puerto Ricans anymore because they took it to the mainland and they took it for to the president, right? Um, a couple of years later after that, we also talked about a story about how um, some uh, four Puerto Rican nationalists uh, shot up the U.S. House of Representatives uh, and injured a bunch of people. Um, all of those stories are nuts, and I'm not doing them justice. If you have not listened to that episode, stop what you're doing now. Go back and listen to that one, and then come back and listen to this one. Towards the end of the uh, episode last time, though, what... Uh, what we were doing is we were talking a little bit about the historical overview, like the background behind it, but we didn't get through all of it. So I want to recap some of that and then push forward until the, basically from 1897 through 1950, when all of this shit started going down. And today I got a bit of a treat at the end of the episode. I'm going to tell you a story about two completely different, but very important characters in this uh, just general scheme of context uh, that couldn't be more different from one another, uh, but nevertheless, their stories are really fascinating, so we're going to talk about that. All right, let's jump right in, shall we? Let's do it. Come on. Let's let's right. let's get up in there. So where are we starting? Spanish-American War? Yeah, we keep coming where back to this, start, but like, right? just to do, just we, to do the recap. We've discussed the Spanish-American right? War. Yeah, we've discussed the Spanish-American War, I don't know how many times in the past. Six two times months, or something like that. Two yeah. months or three <laughs> months, but it's worth just touching on it to kind of lead up because it, I mean, the whole thing is in the background of everything really. Right. And now, no, we'll, we'll cover it real quick. So 1897, um, just a year, a year before the, uh, start of the Spanish American war, Spain issues, Puerto Rico, what was called La Carta de Autonomia, which is the charter of autonomy, which effectively granted Puerto Rico more autonomy over its, you know, self-determination. And the same thing was was granted to Cuba, uh, which and this was all no doubt a means to cool down the the growing pressure of separatism, you know, in these you know Spanish colonies. Um, elections were held the next year in Puerto Rico in March, and the first autonomous government of Puerto Rico went uh, to work in on July seventeenth, eighteen ninety eight. Um, but an autonomous Puerto Rico didn't exactly last super long. Eight days after that point. Um, the commanding general of the U.S., uh, Nelson A. Miles, um, invades Puerto Rico with like 16,000 soldiers. And the U.S. won the Spanish-American War, um, annexed the you know Puerto Rico as, as a part of the United States, uh, and that happened December 10th, 1898 with the Treaty of Paris. And, you know, we discussed this last time around, but just to touch on it again, this is kind of the setup for a 10-year period in Puerto Rican history where the U.S. is like de facto colonizing Puerto Rico. Now, again, for those who haven't listened to the last episode, but I'll go over it again, you could argue that Puerto Rico is still a colony, but when I'm, what I'm talking about, this 10-year period, is, is a period where Puerto Ricans are not yet U.S. citizens. They are basically subjects of the United States, and it is a legit actual colony, right? So they had no status uh, and they're left with a bunch of crippling economic treatment from the U.S. So I want to talk about that uh, because all of this is context for why the hell would Puerto Ricans want to revolt against the uh, 
against the U.S. hegemony, <laughs> right? Um, so 1899, there's a hurricane, just like the one we talked about today. Uh, but this one was really, really bad. It was called San Siriciao or something like that. I mispronounce it every time. Uh, it makes landfall in Puerto Rico. It kills like 3,400 people and becomes one of the worst hurricanes in Caribbean recorded history. There are some estimates that place it as being more deadly than Hurricane Maria back in 2017 from like an absolute death count. Um, there's numbers that vary really wildly about Hurricane Maria, so it's hard to tell. But what I can say is relative to the population at the time, this was absolutely worse. It just represented a much larger percentage of the population because the population was smaller then. Um, so this was a major issue, but uh, outside of the death, the hurricane destroyed the entire island's coffee uh, and uh, coffee crops and, and sugarcane crops, which were their main crops. And, you know, William McKinney, the, the president then of the United States, he, he his response was utterly shit. Uh, not only did the U.S. not send any aid to Puerto Rico, instead they decided to set up U.S. banking on the island and they replaced the Spanish peso with the U.S. dollar. Um, now, at the time, both currencies were valued roughly equally, but uh, the new banks that were set up started declaring that the trade-in value of a peso was 60 cents to the dollar. So that's basically an overnight reduction of 40% of all of Puerto Rican wealth, just like that, which was terrible by itself, but it keeps getting worse. So as a result, a lot of Puerto Ricans, and in, in particular farmers, need to start taking out loans from these new banks to make ends meet. And there were no protections in place for borrowing money. There were no usury laws. Remember, this is the point where, you know, these aren't American citizens. These are the colonized, right? Uh, so these banks set up these, these loans with charging crazy interest rates, extremely predatory, and that led to pretty much everyone defaulting on those loans. And now the banks owned all of the farmlands. And it created a massive land grab for Puerto Rico. Um, by 1930, almost all of Puerto Rico's farms belonged to just 41 sugar syndicates. 80% of these are U.S. owned and the largest four syndicates, there are four of them, so Central Guanica, South Puerto Rico, uh, Fajardo, uh, Fajardo Sugar and, and East Puerto Rico Sugar, all four of those are entirely owned by U.S., by the U.S., private citizens, and they cover over half of the uh, island's arable land. I'm going to stop right there. Because half of the land was owned by four companies. It sounds, uh, doesn't sound too uh, out of the ordinary, given the time. <laughs> yeah, but it's still terrible, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, think about being a Puerto Rican here. You got no money. You got no crops. You have no land. So what do you do to live? A lot of Puerto Ricans end up starting to look for work in the cities because around this time, we're starting to be a lot more industrialization. Um, and that was the only opportunity that they had to start making any money. So when the Puerto Rican legislature uh, enacted a minimum wage law, like the one that was present in the United States of America, the U.S. Supreme Court actually declares it unconstitutional. So they, they shot it down for the minimum wage law. And they made this decision, even though, uh, you know, this, the president of the AFL-CIO, which is a major trade union, his name is Samuel Gompers, he testified that 
the salaries paid to Puerto Ricans are now less than half what they received under the Spanish. So when the U.S. takes over, they're making half as much money. They don't own any of their land. They're all in debt. And uh, also a hurricane destroyed a lot of shit. (laughs) So they're in a really bad spot. Unfortunately, it just keeps getting worse from this point on. So all of the all of the products that are imported to the island in Puerto Rico from the U.S., all the finished products, are then set and priced 15 to 20% higher on the island than they are in the mainland. And actually, some of this is still true to this day. I just bought a car not too long ago, and it's definitely way more expensive here than if I had bought it on the mainland. Uh, and don't give me that shit about they had to sh- ship it over the, the thing. It doesn't cost that much to ship a car. It's It's literally a ridiculous tax that has no bearing on the value or the cost of transportation. It's it's weird. So that one hits me personally. But so to recap, they got no land. They lost 40% of their wealth through trading in pesos for dollars. They um, are in debt. They have no minimum wage and everything costs 15 to 20% higher on the island than it does in the mainland. So again, terrible. So that's, that's the way that the, that a lot of this like economic colonialization, uh, played out in, in Puerto Rico. And that by itself would be, you know, in my opinion, enough to incite a revolution. Um, but there were so many other things that were also going on around this time that contributed to, you know, nationalist sentiments in Puerto Rico. I want to talk a little bit about like Puerto Rican guinea pigs, um, because there's some weird medical shit that was going on around these times that it it's just disgusting. So there's this terrible doctor and he was living on the island and working on the island at the time. His name is Dr. Cornelius P. Rhodes. And he was accused uh, of injecting Puerto Rican patients with live cancer cells. And he killed at least 13 people. Wait, what? Yeah. Look him up. It's a crazy story. And a scandal like erupts when a letter that was written by Dr. Rhodes himself is discovered and released. I'm going to read from that letter. So the Puerto Ricans are the dirtiest, laziest, most degenerate and thievish race of men ever to inhabit this sphere. I have done my best to further process the extermination by killing off eight and transplanting cancer into several more. All physicians take delight in the abusive and torture of the unfortunate subjects. Yeah, man, that's uh, I didn't I did not know about that. That's we that's that's fucking crazy. So this guy was just like like a like a Nazi scientist type. Yes, and dude, this is right during the lead up of World War II. This is when the Nazis were doing that, like starting to gain in power. This dude was doing that shit in Puerto Rico. Yeah, that's uh pretty insane so do you know what happened to him was this guy like yes arrested (laughs) no (laughs) not only did this fuckhead not get in trouble but the u.s put him in charge of like military research on chemical and nuclear warfare and later in he like rose the ranks made a lot of money got a lot of fame and and later the u.s uh press they praised dr rhodes and time magazine put him on the cover hmm Sounds like someone we know. 
Um, I was going to make a Fauci joke, but it's, um, I guess this is worse injecting, um, cancer into people but literally putting cancer in it and he admitted to it in a letter no but i guess what what really seals the deal is that he in writing he's like i've done my part to eliminate this race that is uh undesirable yeah it's a pretty pretty crazy pretty crazy scandal if you ask me i think it's i think it's up there and uh it's uh something that i was ignorant of until just now (laughs) So some context for this is that around the 1930s, there was this, uh, there were many groups, but one of them was called the Human Betterment Association of America. And it started promoting eugenics as the basis for sterilizing blacks and, um, and other undesirables in the U.S. mainland and Puerto Ricans on, in Puerto Rico. So we're in this the was, 30s. So we're in the 1920s yeah, we're in the 30s. and 30s. Right. Um, I guess, you know, a large part of the first half of the, 20th century eugenics was a pretty popular subject like it wasn't if you say eugenics now you're like okay that's like some straight up master race nazi shit back then in the 20s and 30s um it was actually like there was like a lot of scientific associations most most universities had it their own eugenics program or their own eugenics right. association and i'm not just mm-hmm. saying like harvard did and Princeton did. They all had like their eugenics associations. Um, you know, like Teddy Roosevelt was famous. There's like a bunch of letters of him being like, yeah, eugenics is obviously like the right thing to do. Like, what are we going to do? Mix bad pigs with good pigs? Something along those lines. But I mean, right. in the context of the time, in the context of the time, guys, come on, relax. It was a different time. It was a different, it was a different era, guys. Can't judge people by the morality standards of today. No, I'm joking. Um, but yeah, that's that's fucking crazy. And this is the 1930s, so this we're going into the later part of of uh, you know when as this thing starts to become more and more taboo. But you know right. what's interesting about eugenics is that the Nazis cited um, you know Supreme Court case Buck first Bell yes, they did. during the Nuremberg mm-hmm. trials when they were you know being uh, prosecuted or uh, for you know the the extermination of I think retarded people right and they said you know they cited Buck first Bell like the United like the the US eugenics program and that's where they they got from it and, and Buck first Bell was a Supreme Court case. Man, I forget what year it is. My memory is bad. Buck first bell. Uh, I want to say nineteen twenty something. Buck first bell was nineteen twenty seven. My grandfather's right. birth year was a Supreme Court decision that basically said that you know it was, um, you know you you had the right to uh, to uh, it, it wasn't it, it was. Um, Think state like they ruled that states had the right to permit compulsory steriliz- uh, sterilization of mm-hmm. of uh, people, and it was the highlight of this case was um, a woman who uh, who her name was Carrie Buck, and she wasn't even a um, she wasn't even there wasn't something there wasn't anything wrong with her from what I remember. There was a book on it, Buck First Bell. That's how I know this. There wasn't anything wrong with her. She was actually, um, she was like a misfit, you know, like a social misfit. 
I th- mm-hmm. her back she came from like a broken home and, and I think was in and out of different prison systems and orphanages and things like that and um she and I think she ends up in like a, a psychiatric hospital because back then in the 1920s and 30s everyone went to the loony house like that there was a couple right. of different options you know you go to prison or we don't know where to put you and then we might we'll throw you in a, a loony house and she was somebody who ended up in a loony house and ended up being sterilized um, I forget the details of the book, so I'm, I'm I'm doing a giant paraphrase of the story, but I don't know. I thought this could add context to the because this Definitely. nineteen this is 1927 in in the, the Supreme Court case, so right. you know this was still going on, and a lot of the people who were sterilized were minorities. A lot of Native Americans were sterilized, um, right. so it's uh, it was a com- it, it was a common practice. Right. Well, to further that point, they got it done in Puerto Rico too. Yeah. On mass. Right. So t- take a look at this between 1930 and 1970, Puerto Rican women are massively used for testing IUDs and birth control pills. Like before they were, they were doing clinical trials on human beings instead of like on something else, like forcibly on Puerto Rican women. Obviously that caused a lot of, you know, issues with those women that were forced to, to be the guinea pigs. And, you know, in addition to this, one third, I'm going to say that again, one third of Puerto Rico's female population that was of childbearing age were forced to undergo what they call the, quote, operation or la operacion, which is the highest rate in the world. This operation was basically a hysterectomy. Man, and did wait in these, and then did these? Um, was this something that was happening? Um, you know, upon with, with their knowledge, and I'm not going to say consent, but like, did they no, know this was going def- on? Definitely not. They were operated on either without their knowledge, and in most cases without their consent. And so they were removing f- their wombs, right? What in their sleep, like? So most of them, them under? were. Most of them were. Uh, they were either um, lied to and saying, hey, we're going to do this test. We're going to pay you some money. We're going to do a quick little operation to try something out, right? But you'll be fine. And then, you know, they wake up and they don't have a womb. Or more commonly, these procedures occurred immediately after childbirth. So, like, you're giving birth and they're like, oh, doctor says you have to, like, do a surgery because something went wrong. And actually, the surgery is a hysterectomy without their consent. Yeah, that's fucked One up. third. I want to say that again. One third of the female population of, of Puerto Rico that's of childbearing age. A third. You know, I'm surprised you don't hear more about this. It's not, I feel like it wouldn't be taboo to talk. It's not like some sensitive topic, you know, um, where people... Uh, where, where there's still some kind of taboo around it or mythology around it where it's a sacred cow. Mm-hmm. I feel like in modern day politics, this would, you know, the modern left would at the very least eat this stuff up and be like, you know, kind of talk about this all the time uh, when, when, when discussing, you know, um, um, abuses of, of minorities or, or colonized people, but it doesn't seem to be mentioned. No. It doesn't ever like yeah, I, this is the I'm first time I've, I've ever heard I've heard about this as well. I'm surprised this is not like 
you know, in history textbooks. Yeah, man, well, I'm just as surprised. I, no, I was just going to say that. Yeah, I just, I'm, I'm just uh, surprised that this is something that's not kind of like shoved in your face by the modern left. <clears throat> or anyone for that matter. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, what's crazy about this is that, and this is again going back to the, the genesis of this string of episodes, is that I went to a, like a coffee like farm in the middle of the mountains and my girlfriend looked at the Wikipedia for the city that we were going to and found out about the bombings uh, that happened in the 1950s. And that just led me down this crazy ass rabbit hole of all of this secret, not so secret history of Puerto Rico that literally no one knows about, which is nuts. Anyway, uh, I want to get off the, the medical topic for a bit because it, it really upsets me. Um, so kind of going back to, you know, the, the economic context a little bit, uh, 1934, uh, there's a bunch of sugarcane workers. They're called, uh, los macheteros. So machete people. (laughs) Um, and they, they go on an island wide agricultural strike and they succeed in getting some wage increases. And this is the first time in, in Puerto Rican history that anyone organized against the United States and actually won and actually got something out of it. Uh, so it was a big deal. Um, but they went the entire island, all of the sugar producers went on strike. Remember, four companies owned half of the arable land in Puerto Rico. That's a lot of fucking people not working, right? Um, so there was that. Um, but at the time, you know, the U.S. is, is in a Great Depression, or ramping up to World War II, you know, and, you know, this is seen as a threat to national security because of all the business interests there. Um, and the Puerto Rican National Party, um, Nationalist Party gets targeted as a result. There's going to be a lot of things I'm going to skip for, for brevity here. But in 1935, in the town of Rio Piedras, uh, there was an, a student assembly at the University of Puerto Rico, and the police show up to this, you know, assembly. Uh, and basically they were saying that this is like a nationalist movement and some shit goes down and the police shoot and kill four members, um, of the Puerto Rican nationalist party. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later in my stories. Uh, but and, for now, and just, yeah, I just want to jump in there because we spoke about this last episode and, and maybe I shouldn't discuss this in more detail just because if you haven't listened to it it's kind of a very interesting segment in the show so i don't want to spoil it but is this the situation that we were talking about on our last episode it's the next it's the next one (laughs) okay all right Um, i'm getting ahead of myself so it's it's okay uh so they they shoot and kill four people the police that is uh but what you need to know about that is that the nationalists end up retaliating by killing the U.S. appointed police chief Alicia, Alicia Francis Riggs, so E. Francis Riggs, we we made fun of this guy a little bit in the last episode too. So he's he's no one to to stick up for. He's a piece of shit. Um, yeah, and he's so, the founder of Riggs Bank. Well, he's the son of he's the son the he's the son of the founder of Riggs, of Riggs Bank. Bank. Right. And um, you Riggs know Riggs Bank, Bank Riggs Bank is that famous. Um, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was that bank. It's that money laundering bank. So it's a DC bank that 
used to like stash uh, like Pinochet's money and like for like you know dictators who were who were cool with the U.S. during the Cold War used to put their money in Riggs Bank and Riggs Bank was also used to to launder money to uh, 9/11 hijackers. So it's like a really it's an extremely shady financial institution that and there's eventually and was the shut eventually was guy. shut down. <laughs> The son of the guy is also the appoint the U.S. appointed police chief of the entire island. So that's all you really need to know about that. Anyway, so they kill him, uh, and both of the nationalists that did it were arrested. They were beaten, and then they were executed in the police station without a trial. So that's how that went down. Summary. So they executions. just they just took yeah. So they just took them and they executed them. So yep. They just shot him in the head. Mm-hmm. All right, now a couple years later, uh, in a different town called Ponce, this is the crazy one, um, and I, I'm definitely not going to do this justice because it's it's too crazy. It, you could probably do a whole episode on this, but it was Palm Sunday on Mar- March 21st, 1937. A peaceful march was set up in the town of Ponce, which is the second largest city in, in Puerto Rico, and they were supporting uh, a character, Pedro Albizu Campos, uh, and... Um, We'll talk more about him later. Uh, and, you know, some other nationalists who r- were recently imprisoned as a result of that assassination, right? So that assass- that assassination on the police chief caused a whole chain of events that, you know, led to mass uh, arrests on, on nationalists or suspected nationalists. Now, these folks had a permit to march, uh, but that permit was revoked on the hour that they were set to march by the U.S.-appointed Governor Blanton Winship. This march turns into a bloody police slaughter. So what happened here, and I'm going to give a little bit more context from the last episode, is that the police surround the demonstrators and block off all of the exit points, and they just start opening fire on the crowd with machine guns. They killed 17 unarmed Puerto Rican civilians and wounded 200 others. Everyone was killed, or lots of people were. Women and children are killed, including a seven-year-old girl who was shot in the back. In fact, on the inspection, many of the people who were killed were shot in the back while trying to flee. By the way, this was all filmed, right? This isn't like hearsay. This is There was a local news like crew in the area filming for the demonstration, and they filmed it, and they took pictures. Um... So, but, but of course the police try to pretend like, oh no, we were just defending ourselves. They even got one of the camera people and were like, after they killed all the people, they were like, Hey, take a few pictures of us looking at the rooftop with some guns. Um, I wish I had a, uh, an image up for you, Henry, but it's, it's just like the stupidest picture. It's like three guys wearing, you know, by the way, the police uniforms looked a lot like Nazi uniforms for some reason (laughs) during the time. Um, and they were like staring up at the roofs with their machine guns and like pretending like they got sniped or something like that. I don't know. That didn't work. Pretty much the the film and the and the pictures said it said it all. And at least in Puerto Rico, there was a huge outrage. Um, and I also just want to be clear again that no one at the march was armed. Which. You know, by the way, a bunch of other, you know, if, if they were, if they were armed, if they had been armed, I think a lot more cops would have been killed or wounded during the shootout. But, um, 
But by the way, a lot of cops were wounded in the crossfire because they surrounded the demonstrators, which meant that they were shooting at each other as well as at the people. Like they literally surrounded them and shot inwards. So some of the cops got wounded because they shot each other, <laughs> which is fucking stupid. Um, to add insult to injury to this whole mess, uh, the police end up following the wounded to the hospitals and arrested a dozen of like dozens of them and charged them with, I don't even know what it was just some bullshit to be honest. Um, they even pressured a bunch of them to take plea deals for doing nothing for the crime of getting shot, <laughs> which is again, fucked up. This was a huge affair. Uh, the, the, the Ponce massacre. Um, and I'm, I'm honestly really not doing it justice with this short description, but this is one of those very important, you know, events that really gave a lot of context to why certain Puerto Rican nationalists would decide that they want to revolt and claim independence. When you were in Ponce, were there, was there a lot of like memorials, uh, commemorate, uh, you know, honoring this or, you know, yeah. Not that I can remember, to be honest, to be honest with you. Um, but I did read in the book, and I'm going to have to go check now, that you can still see some of the bullet holes in some of the old buildings. Um, I'll have to go see myself. But it was nuts. They, they fired millions of bullets. I don't know. I'm, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but they shot a lot. <laughs> Enough bullets to kill 17 people and wound many others. 100, yeah. So at least 217 bullets, right? Um, all right, so moving along a little bit, in 1939 and in 1941, uh, the U.S. establishes some military bases on the islands of Vieques and Culebra. Uh, one of them, the Roosevelt uh, Roads Naval Station, this is one of the largest naval facilities in the world. It covers 32,000 acres, three harbors, and two-thirds of the island of Vieques. Actually, now if I'm thinking about it, they might have closed it down. Um, and this was, I think, in 2003. Don't quote me on that, but we're talking about 1941. So, you know, it was around then. And for 60 years, the U.S. Navy uses Vieques for target practice, basically. And they just do bombing exercises on the island. And they use crazy shit like napalm, Agent Orange, you know, uh, other other conventional weapons. And between 300 and 800 tons of deplete, depleted uranium-tipped ammunition. A lot of uranium that they're dropping on this island. Um, in total, the Navy drops about 3 million pounds of ordnance on Vieques annually until 2003 for 60 years yeah and that stuff like causes cancer man yeah there were there were adverse adverse health effects and there's very strong correlations to elevated cancer rates and i think um 2003 is when they stopped doing it um but yeah crazy so U.S. military just bombing the shit out of an island, giving everybody cancer. More of that. Uh, I'm gonna, this is going to be the last one for the historical bits, and then I want to tell you some stories of two people. Um, but 1948, this is also going to be really important. Um, they, Puerto Rico um, 
enacts gag law, uh, law 53, which is referred to as the gag law. And it's intended to basically suppress the independence movement in Puerto Rico. Um, it makes it a crime to, you know, sing, you know, La Borinquinera, which is the, the nationalist song for Puerto Rico, or to speak or to write about independence, or also to meet with anyone or hold any assemblies with regards to the political status of Puerto Rico. And anyone that was found guilty of, you know, breaking this law was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment, a fine of $10,000 or both. Again, this is 1948, so $10,000 is a crazy amount of money. Um, Gag law also made it a crime to basically wave a Puerto Rican flag, even in your own home. And this flag provision allowed police and National Guard to basically enter anybody's home without a warrant and search and seize any and all the property, regardless of the probable cause. And I just want to keep score here, right? This is well after 1917 when the United States declared all Puerto Ricans as United States citizens. And keep in mind, again, remember, they did this because they wanted to send 18,000 of them to go fight in World War I. That's besides the point. They're all United States citizens. So this gag law was in direct violation of the First Amendment of the United States, which would obviously guarantee freedom of speech, up to and including waving a damn flag. Um, but despite the fact that this was constitutionally flawed, it, it was really effective. Um, Fifteen members of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party are pretty much immediately arrested after they enacted this law, and they're accused of violating it. And throughout the island thereafter, there are mass arrests and threatened arrests throughout the island. You know, I would say that this was a response of the Cold War. However, um, you know, this is this is happening prior to it was the actually Cold War. it was it was modeled off of some of the laws or uh, um, maybe not laws but like precedents that were set for anti-communism, but it was just applied to Puerto Rican nationalists in the same way. Well, the U.S. was, uh, you know, super worried about nationalist movements and their camaraderie with communists and socialists or just general populist movements, even though a lot of those nationalist movements ended up not really being too communist or even being hostile to communism. Um, You know, they were kind of like general, just, you know, Nasser type guys who were just... Mm -hmm strongman populist but i guess you know they would since nationalism would be in direct opposition to you know imperial empires of that age like the british empire the french empire specifically you know they're the ones who are mainly dealing with these nationalist movements after world war ii um egypt i mean the british dealing with with egypt the French dealing with with Indo with Indochina and Vietnam, um, you know those movements weren't really. I mean, they were socialist, as in they were just you know anti-colonial movements. And right, the um, same was true of, of these Puerto Ricans. They, they and, definitely and the Puerto were Ricans, meaning, yeah. The, the Puerto Ricans. About, I mean, it was definitely more about. Like, and all of them were kind of left leaning, but I think it was more or less just independence movements, and they would take any bones that were thrown to them. So if the Soviet Union was like, hey, we'll support your independence movement in, in the West, then they'll be like, yeah, sure. We'll say some, we'll read your stupid book about 
marks or whatever. So <laughs> I think it was like that. Um, that's kind of a crude description and not entirely accurate, but I think <clears> you know what I mean. Um, yeah. These 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 movements were were not inspired by leftism. They were more or less inspired just by nationalism. Hence the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party. That's right. Well, Henry, now I've given you all of the context for those six crazy stories I told you about last episode. What do you think? I mean, like, does this make more sense now? Well, yeah, it does make sense. It does make sense. And we were talking about this, and I don't remember if this was on the episode or not, if we were talking about this off air. But we were talking about Rand papers. We were talking about Rand papers with Scott last week, too. I pulled that up, too. There's there's a Rand paper that is talking about Puerto Rican terrorism. And this is actually written in the 70s and or 70s or 80s. Uh, and yeah, the 70s. Mm-hmm. What they, you know, one of the things that it states about the Puerto Rican nationalist movement is that it is a movement that doesn't really recognize Puerto Rico or Puerto Ricans as an identity. It more or less looks at nationalism in the lens that you pursue these movements or you pursue these independence movements and and, and in the pursuit of independence in itself, it creates some identity or creates a a separate identity from the larger nation or the larger country or the larger, uh, you know, the the imperial power, you know, that being, you know, the Spanish at first and then being the U.S., um, you know, after the Spanish-American War. But it compares it to the Palestinian movement, yeah. where a lot of uh, you know pro-Zionist types will say things like, "Well, there's no such thing as a Palestinian. There's no such thing. You know, they're they're just Arabs. They're Bedouin Arabs, or they're Jordanians, or they're you know whatever. They're they're just Arabs. There was no there was no identity called Palestinians ever here before, and." This, um, you know, these these Palestinian movements, um, like the PLO, their um, their struggle in itself is 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 what has created like the identity of a Palestinian. Like there was no such thing as a Palestinian before. You kind of hear that a lot with Russians when they talk about Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll be like, oh, like you know, they're the Ukrainians are kind of reinventing their identity every twenty years. Um, you know, it's it's um, it, there there's really no such thing. It was just Galatia, some Western offshoot that spoke a dialect of Russian, and and now um, you know they're acting like they're some separate thing, but they're Russian, they're Slavics, and you know they're every once in a while this region gets uppity, and you know they want to recreate their identity to being something different, and that's what this uh, kind of hostility towards Russia is. So. Um, what I'm saying is that, and I guess I'm kind of the major point I'm trying to make here. The thesis of this is that, um, you know, the the way that there's a reason why nations look at nationalist movements as um, with such hostility, because ultimately they threatened. You know, the most important part about being a state is, you know, the, the overall monopoly on violence. And, uh, you know, that's why there's, that's why, you know, the U.S. will drop Agent Orange on, a, mm-hmm. you know, a Puerto Rican town or drop bombs on a Puerto Rican town or, 
you know, Puerto Rican police or Puerto Rican National Guard, you know, they'll go out and they'll find, you know, they'll 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 be guns ready for a Puerto Rican nationalist protest or, you know, they'll they'll just won't even bother, um, you know, putting Puerto Rican nationalist on trial. They'll just go and take him in the back and shoot him in the head because nationalism mm-hmm. is 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 um, you know the largest threat to imperialism. I mean, nationalism is really what destroyed the Soviet Union. It's, um, you know, all these countries were like, we're not communist Soviets, we're Lithuanians, or we're Polish, or we're, or we're Latvians, or, you know, whatever. You name the Soviet sphere block. Country, you know, nationalism right? ultimately was what, well, it wasn't the only thing, but it was one. it was definitely in the background of the breakup of the Soviet Union that, you know, they, there was these nationalist movements that, you know, kind of saw it as a kind of a Russian imperial project. Sure. And they didn't identify, they, they identified much more with just, you know, their local communities and their national identity and dialects and cultures rather than, you know, the, the, the communist uh, bureaucracy. So there's my contribution to this. There's, that's my two cents. Hopefully it makes I mean, the sense. Parallels are, the parallels are uncanny. So um, I want to I close this episode by uh, telling you a story about two different Puerto Ricans that are very important uh, in this story uh, that we didn't really touch on either in the last episode or this episode yet. Um, they are very different. Um, they follow completely different paths, but they both contributed to this story in measurably different ways. So the first one I want to talk about is Luis Munoz Marin, who I will refer to as Luis Jr. because his dad, who I'll talk about as well, uh, is also named Luis. Um, so Luis Munoz Marin was born in 1898, three days before the USS Maine exploded in the Havana Harbor and also three months before the U.S. invaded Puerto Rico, right? So he basically started off, you know, his his lifespan uh, with, you know, the, the events that led to the annexation of Puerto Rico. And uh, his dad, uh, who also had the same name but was known as Don Luis, uh, he owned a newspaper called La Democracia, which he used... Uh, amply to criticize Puerto Rican politicians who were basically kowtowing to the Americans. Make a long story short, shit got real and Don Luis moved his family to New York City in 1901. Uh, There he rented out a old armory and he started a new newspaper uh, and he called this the Puerto Rico Herald uh, where he continued to advocate for independence and uh, also corresponded with a bunch of Puerto Rican independence thinkers and leaders. Uh, so the, the Don was in support of independence, but he also did some weird stuff. Uh, while he was in the States, he took up a job as a lobbyist for Puerto Rico's largest sugar plantation owners. And he actually helped them to lobby to increase exports, which was measurably bad for the people who were actually doing the job. And when he was questioned about that contradiction, he said, and I'll, and I'll quote him, I'm a patriot, not a communist. <laughs> which I think is funny. 
at the end of the day, he was still a capitalist uh, and he had to make his money. So this obviously made the Don a bunch of money. Uh, and so he sent his son to a prestigious school in the United States where he studied. And later, uh, the Don went back to Puerto Rico and took his family uh, and he started the Union Party there, uh, which ended up winning the uh, the general election and took the House. Um, and so between that and his newspapers, he became a, like a super influential Puerto Rican politician. Uh, eventually, the, the Don gets elected as Puerto Rico's resident commissioner, and uh, he goes back to the United States. So he travels to Washington, D.C. in 1910. And there's this whole interesting backstory about Luis Jr., the person who we're actually going to talk about, and about his upbringing and, you know, about this, like, feeling of being out of place in both Puerto Rico and New York and how he developed into a pretty aloof kind of kid because his dad didn't give him enough attention because he was always busy with politics and shit. I'll spare you those details. It is a fascinating story, but you can read about it elsewhere. Uh, what you do need to know is that Luis Jr. Uh, is that the events of his upbringing results in him becoming like a really shit student. So despite having private tutors and going to some of the best schools, he failed several grades and was just utterly bad at school, uh, except for literature. Between spending time uh, in D.C. with his dad and New York City with his mom, he eventually gets into uh, visiting some opium dems in Hell's Kitchen, and he gets hooked on dope. So in 1916, uh, the Don goes back to Puerto Rico uh, to discuss the terms of the Jones Act with some politicians in Puerto Rico, and he ends up getting sick uh, with like a burst gallbladder, and he dies. On his deathbed, um, the Don asks his son to get his shit together and become a lawyer and carry on his legacy. Spoiler alert, Luis Jr. didn't do that. Uh, he spends the next 15 years trying to make, and, and failing, frankly, trying to make like a literary magazine. Uh, and he ends up like doing tours of the West Village in New York City to make enough money to buy opium. And that's what he did for 15 years after his dad died. Oh, also, he impregnated a girl, gets married, and becomes a deadbeat dad who doesn't support them. But that's kind of like side context. Um Eventually, he does go back to Puerto Rico, and he's living off of an allowance that his mother was giving him from the Don's newspaper, which was still running at the time. And he takes up a job at that newspaper and gets a crazy idea. And this is where we kind of tie it back into some of the other uh, um, episodes that we've done. But he starts studying William, Rand Rad Ugh. William Randolph Hearst, who you might remember as the yellow journalism guy. Uh, and he got to the thinking that he could probably use this newspaper that he has to run for Senate because he'd have control over the narrative. And he did it, and eventually he won. Um, between the newspaper and the notoriety of his father's legacy, people were basically willing to vote him in. I will give him some credit, though. Uh, he did a really great job locking up the rural vote, and he campaigned on pan, tierra, y libertad, which is bread, property, and liberty, which is kind of a play on the uh, French Revolution slogan, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, which is liberty, uh, egality, and fraternity, I think. I don't know. I don't speak French. Um, and it's also super similar to all those like th three-word slogans that the right-wingers use today. You know, what is it like? Faith, constitution, and like babies or some sh Jesus, right? 
Um, yeah, so live life really love. <laughs> yeah, all of those. Well, that live life love um, is like a thing that chicks get on their wall when they're <laughs> twenty two. Yeah, it worked on the uh, it worked on the Hibaros, the uh, the uh, rural people in Puerto Rico. Anyway, so then something weird happens, right? In 1943, the U.S. Senator Millard Tidings, this guy introduces some legislation to give Puerto Rico independence. And keep in mind, he's, the, he's a major senator, leader of his party, right? And Luis Jr. here rejected it. He said that Puerto Ricans weren't ready to rule themselves. In 1949, Luis Jr. became the first elected governor of Puerto Rico, and this is important because prior to this, it was all presidential appointments, all of which were total fuck-ups. I can do whole episodes on on just some of these guys and the shit that they did. That tidings legislation was reintroduced four more times over the years. And each time he was trying to address some of the key concerns that Luis Jr. and like had with those legislations. And Luis Jr. rejected it every single time. This is despite the fact that at the time, 57% of the democratically elected legislature of Puerto Rico was in favor of it, but he was just shooting it down every single time. They had the opportunity for independence. And this guy decided no. Well, shame on Luis. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I don't know. I mean, do you think that independence would have been, like, positive at that time? Is there a point to what he was saying or no? Maybe in in the beginning. In in the beginning, but we're talking about this guy, Tidings, four times changed the, like, reintroduced the legislation and updated it to reflect the concerns of this guy, but that by the time, the end of it, like, Luis Jr. here didn't have any good reasons to shoot shoot it down. He just kept shooting it down. Right now, in just modern day Puerto Rican politics, what is the percentage of Puerto Ricans who favor independence and versus um, you know the status quo versus statehood? This Sorry. is a yeah. This is a hard question to answer <clears throat> for a few reasons, and for this, I actually could turn to the Rand paper, which was written in the seventies. You know, they in it they wrote. Uh, um, even so, in the 1932 general election, his Nationalist Party, this is Pedro Albizu Campos, which we'll talk about later, um, won only two percent of the vote. Its failure to attract widespread support was partly the result of successful efforts by the insular officials to curb the separatists, but it also reflected the belief held by influential Puerto Ricans that independence would destroy the island's fragile economy. Right. So at this time. It was fucking dangerous to even be, like, in favor of independence, as I very clearly showed you over the last two episodes, right? So it's very similar in in many ways to uh, when we were talking about McCarthyism, right? And we discussed at length why, why we feel like there is no real left in the United States, and part of it is because in the 1950s, it was dangerous politically and also economically to be even a little bit left-leaning so a lot of those sentiments fell out of favor now there's been like seven or eight plebiscites 
in Puerto Rico on the question of what do we do with Puerto Rico? And and in the beginning, there was a lot of, of favoritism skewing towards independence, but the Congress did nothing about it. And over time, and especially during these periods, as it became much more dangerous for them to actually hold these types of belief, you start seeing independ- um, independence going down and favor- favorability for either the status quo, which is just a colony, or uh, statehood going up, right? Because those were the only two politically acceptable and easy options. Of course, you know, independence falls out of favor kind of a lot because they keep trying it and in response, you know, they get bombed. So that's some context around it. Now to answer your question more directly, Henry, I think what's important to understand is that in the later plebiscites, a lot of the times they were voting for either statehood or the status quo, but the ultimate turnout for the vote was like 2% of the voting population, right? Which were also stated as reasons by Congress to not accept the plebiscite because, you know, a plurality or even a majority of the, the, um, the voting population didn't even vote on the issue, right? So it's hard for me to tell you where do Puerto Ricans stand today on the issue because a lot of them just don't even vote, so we can't even get it on paper what they want. What I can tell you from my experience is that I feel like it's pretty split. About 50-50, and it falls along the lines of statehood or independence. There is a subset of people who are in favor of keeping the status quo, but I think at this juncture, they're kind of in the minority. It's pretty polar right now, and it's either statehood or total independence. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, well, going back to this guy, so he was a, he was in into peace. Uh, he was into independence, right? So you know, yeah. w- what was so you think that he essentially flip flopped just because of the political consequences? Like it would be dangerous for his political career to to favor independence at that time. I think that's too easy of an excuse for him. I don't think that that was the case. As a matter of fact, I know that that wasn't the case. The real so, reason why this guy was flip-flopping on this is because the FBI had dirt on him. Okay. So they had him like, you know, dressed up with heels and something or something. <laughs> that that wouldn't have been enough, but so Luis Jr. was just one of the victims of this widespread program that happened around this time by the FBI called Carpetas, which were these documents that the FBI would collect this extensive dirt on Puerto Ricans, particularly the ones that were, you know, interested in independence. And some people had thousands of pages of dirt on them. One of those people is going to be the second guy we're going to talk about in a bit. Um, but this is like, you know, totally illegal, right? This was happening to United States citizens. This is like, like you think FISA is bad or like, you know, uh, Homeland Security shit is bad. Like this was the worst possible program, right? Huge invasion of privacy. Wiretappings, you name it. Just They had everything. They had dirt on everyone. And Luis Jr. was one of them. Funny enough, he only had a single page, but one page was enough. Enough dirt to get him to, uh, you know, play ball. He was a drunk, he was a druggie, and a deadbeat dad. Also, and this is super important, he was involved in a major drug running deal got caught and then 
used his governorship to obstruct the investigation. And that was enough to convince, like all that dirt that the FBI had on him was enough to convince him to play ball with his handlers. You know, it seems like child's play for like today's politicians or even like yeah. yesterday's politicians, like Ted Kennedy. This was a much bigger deal then. <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah. yeah. Like Ted Kennedy, um, you know, he crashes his car into a, into a, you know, a body of water and kills his mistress um, and then leaves her for dead. Um, you know, his political, he, he still almost ran for president afterwards. Right, right. But I mean, at the time, being a druggie was like the worst offense to, you know, to like your image. And this this dude is a huge opium smoker. He even grew his own opium in Puerto Rico to smoke, which is crazy. It's a different yeah. story. Um, But it really was like the, the case of like major drug running deal. And the FBI had evidence that he was obstructing that case and could have easily just ended him. So they were like, ah, we got compromise on you, you know? So play ball. I'll try it once. I took a puff and I, but I didn't, I didn't inhale. Wasn't that Bill Clinton when he was talking <laughs> yeah. about smoking weed in college? He was like, I once took Stupidest. a hit of a joint, but I didn't inhale it. <laughs> Contrast that with Obama, who's like, I smoked it and I inhaled. I tried cocaine. That was the point. <laughs> I tried cocaine and I right. uh, never stopped doing it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think he did cocaine, but. He didn't yeah, strike me as the type, but I wouldn't no, put he, it past he him. De- he definitely wasn't. The, I don't. He didn't seem like someone who would do that frequently. Um, yeah. But we di- we're digressing right now. Yeah, we're going on a rabbit hole here. Uh, okay, so Luis Jr. From here on, right? He's he's the FBI's got him the balls by the balls. Uh, Luis Jr. spends his days as the governor doing some pretty heinous shit and enriching himself. And this was okay as long as he went along with the general U.S. plan for Puerto Rico, which was let's just keep subjugating and colonizing Puerto Rico. Kill everything that has to do with independence up to and including any nationalist movements in Puerto Rico. That was his, that was his directive from, from the, his FBI handlers, and he did that. Also, side note, he divorced his wife and married his mistress uh, during the time. So it was like kind of a scandal, but you know, just wanted to add that little color there. One of the bigger things, and we talked about this a, a few moments ago, was that this is the guy that enacted the Law 53. That was the gag law, which prevented Puerto Ricans from flying the, the flag or saying anything in, remotely in favor of independence. And this here was the legal framework by which uh, you know, they used to justify pretty much all of the crazy shit that the police and the National Guard were doing that you know, we talked about um, in the prior episode on Puerto Rico. Um, so yeah, this guy is a piece of shit. Uh, and he lived until he was 80 something or he lived until the eighties, I should say. So the Puerto Rican flag was banned until it became a Commonwealth. The Puerto Rican flag was banned until, no, it was already a Commonwealth, uh, law 53. This is after they were, uh, uh, after they were all United States citizens, right? They banned Basically, they banned free speech. So they banned. So the flag. So the 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 red, white, and blue with the single star and the triangle. Right. That flag was banned. Can't fly it. No, only only the old glory can be flown. I kind of like this. The sound this of that. is. 
I'm joking. This is this is um, again. This is in 1948 to 1957, right? Well after. Remember, they they've been uh, Puerto Ricans were United States citizens since 1917. It's like 50 years later, you know, 40 years later, whatever. Well, now if you can only come to uh, the Bronx, any part any part of the Bronx, and Bushwick, <laughs> or or Bushwick, or Washington Heights. Or Washington Heights is what feels more. All you see is Puerto Rican flags. <laughs> yeah. All you see is Puerto Rican flags. Anyway, so that's this guy, right? Puerto Rican bounced around. Is this why Puerto and... Rican the Puerto Rican Day Parade is so wild? Is it just all this kind of built well, so, up energy? So from, many Puerto Ricans time? left so many Puerto Ricans left the island because they're literally United States citizens, so you can't stop them from leaving, right? You can't stop them from coming in. You can't prevent their immigration. And living on the island sucked. Like, it was terrible during this time. Especially if you were in, like, a, you know, in, in like, independentista or whatever they call them, you know, people for pro-independence. Do you think a lot of... So the Puerto Rican diaspora in the United States is bigger than the Puerto Rican population in Puerto Rico. Oh. By I, a lot. I want to say, yeah. I don't know for sure. I'm pretty certain that it is, though. Because... And especially a, if a, you consider Puerto Rican diaspora, like, to include, like, second generation, quote-unquote, if you will, like myself, yeah. as an example. Yeah, so like yourself. I would be you're... a part of the Puerto Rican diaspora. So then, yes, if you're including second generations, yeah, absolutely. There's a million Puerto, Rican in, Puerto Ricans in New York alone. And, right. and there's three million in Puerto Rico. There's three millions in Puerto. There's three million in Puerto Rico. There's a bunch in Florida. There's a bunch in Philadelphia. There's a mm-hmm. bunch in Chicago. Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there's you know other cities that we're not naming where there's a bunch of Puerto Rican population. Massive but those people. are the big ones, okay. like <laughs> New York, New York, Florida, Philadelphia, and Chicago, where there's right. large Puerto Rican. I'd count New Jersey into the mix, but it's New York tri-state area. I include that. Um, And um, well, I mean, there's a lot of Puerto Rican flags. I'm sure there's a lot of Puerto Rican flags (laughs) flying around. uh, According to Joe Biden, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans in Delaware too. So (laughs) because he was he was raised a Puerto Rican, if you if you remember from the beginning of the episode, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of Puerto Ricans in Delaware. Yeah. I mean, the, the entire East Coast, uh, New York, Philadelphia area, there's there's a lot of Puerto Ricans. It's one of the biggest, um, you know, Latino diasporas in, in the country. It has to be probably right after Mexican, right? Or am I yeah. making it up? I would imagine it's right after Mexican. Yeah. But yeah, so this is the, this is the guy. This is, this is the, the governor. By the way, the airport's named after him, so you can thank, thank him for that. Um, anywho, I want to talk about it's not a great airport. No, it's not, it really isn't. (laughs) They don't have chargers, they they don't have a lot of things, they don't have food courts that are open during regular business hours. So, let's just put all they have is a Margaritaville, (laughs) and it's not open half the time. Is I'm gonna go off on a fucking tangent if you get me started on that, but wait, wait, before um, maybe this, I might open uh Pandora's box with this tangent, but um. You know, there's a Margaritaville hotel in, in New York right now. Do you know that? I didn't know that. That's funny. In in Times Square. 
I didn't know that. A Margaritaville Hotel. Well, we also have senior frogs here in Puerto Rico, which is hilarious. <laughs> the senior frogs. I thought they were only in like Panama Beach. No, they're in like Mexico and lots of places, they're... but Puerto Rico also. Anyway, I want to talk to you about the second guy so we can wrap up this episode here. <laughs> um, okay. Different guy. Totally different. Different crazy ass story. Very important to remember the earlier story because this guy's story is wildly different. So his name is Pedro Albizu Campos. He was born a bastard and poor as hell in the south of Puerto Rico in Ponce. Uh, and his dad rejected him because he was too dark-skinned. Which, you know, come to think of it, you should have thought about that before sleeping with a dark-skinned woman. That's my two cents, but yeah. His mom probably suffered from severe depression, and by probably, I mean like definitely. Uh, she tried several times to kill herself and Pedro by drowning them both in the river, uh, but was prevented most of the times by family members eventually she ends up succeeding and killed herself in that river um pedro was orphaned and his aunt took him in pedro was like four years old at this time he didn't actually start school until he was 12 years old which is obviously super late but he completed all eight primary grades in four and a half years and then he did high school in two years and graduated as valedictorian and he got a scholarship to go to the University of Vermont. Kid was pretty smart. After that, he was admitted into Harvard College as the first Puerto Rican ever admitted to Harvard College, which is crazy. Um, he did super well there, and he taught chemistry and French and Spanish in a local high school while he was out there. He also met his wife uh, at Harvard, and he stayed with her basically until his, day, his last day juxtaposing this against uh, the Luis Jr. story here. Okay, so Luis um, Jr. is a scumbag, and this guy is a good guy who, you know, who contributed to society and, and beat, I think objectively, beat odds. Yeah, I think objectively, if you look at their, their like, tracks. So tale, um, the tale of two Puerto Ricans, you got a scumbag, and then you have a great guy who accomplished a lot despite right. the odds being against them. That's right. Well, well it, it's not necessarily a happy ending for this guy, but... I won't get ahead of All myself. right, thanks for spoiling it. I was <laughs> <laughs> um, during World War One, Pedro actually volunteers and served as first lieutenant in the U.S. Army. Right, so he goes to World War One, fights in World War One. In 1919, he returned to law school at Harvard, and he started to develop this kind of understanding that no matter how good he was or how he served, like the people at Harvard treated him as like an other he wasn't fully accepted there so he devoted himself to his own country and his own culture and he started studying everything uh and and hard with a goal of supporting puerto rican independence this part i forgot to write down but i actually quickly googled it uh before so i can get the the uh, names and, and dates right during this time, Albizo Campos, Pedro was consulted to draft what would ultimately become the Constitution of the Irish Free State. He actually met Amon de, de Valera in Massachusetts. And they they like got buddy buddy, and this dude drafted the Constitution of Irish of Ireland. 
or a northern island it's southern or northern i forget which one southern actually. northern it's ireland is the seceded. part of the uk yeah Eamon de valera he met with him dude loved him helped him draft the constitution can you believe that shit <laughs> Pretty yeah, crazy. that's super interesting. I read that before that there was a Puerto Rican guy that helped uh, some Puerto Rican guy. You ever see the mm-hmm. South Park where no. where every single so like um, the, the parents think they killed Butters, so they blame it on some Puerto Rican guy. So like they're like, so who was it? And they're like, it was a uh, some Puerto Rican guy, and then a bunch of famous murderers who got off were like. Like O.J. Simpson shows up, he's like, "Yeah, my wife was killed by some Puerto Rican guy too." <laughs> yeah, All right, but I digress. Sounds, I don't know. What sounds there. sounds relevant based on some of the shitty stories that I've been telling. <laughs> um, anyway, so you know he's smart dude. You know, very interested at this point in in independence movements. Obviously, the Puerto Rican independence movement, but also the Irish one. He helped him draft the the Constitution. Um, in 1921, he ends up graduating law school as valedictorian, and he got like a million job offers, including a clerkship at the U.S. Supreme Court, a diplomatic post in, in Mexico, a judgeship in Puerto Rico, and, and some executive position at a U.S. corporation. These were among a lot of them, and they were all incredibly high-paying jobs. But he turned them all down and became a lawyer for Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico, particularly the poor ones. Uh, there's stories about him getting paid with like chickens and vegetables and sometimes just like a thank you. He was basically doing pro bono work down there, but his goal was really to create um, a network of people and also gain the respect of Puerto Ricans um, to ultimately like whip them up into a you know independence movement. And, you know, he started writing for this uh, publication called El Nacionalista de Ponce, and he gained a lot of notoriety doing that, and he ended up doing a bunch of political rallies for what would later become the Nationalist Party. Between 1927 and 1930, Pedro ends up traveling to places like Cuba, Panama, Mexico, Venezuela, DR, Haiti, Peru, and some other places. Uh, where he was campaigning and networking for his Puerto Rican revolution. Uh, Reading this a different way, he went to these countries to get radicalized by crazy socialists like Che Guevara, right? Uh, So whichever way you want to read it, he went around, right? Um, In 1930, Pedro became the president of the Nationalist Party of Puerto Rico, and the platform was super clear. He wanted to reclaim Puerto Rican land, nationalize the banks, reinstate Spanish as the primary language, and eliminate tariff payments to the United States. That's what they wanted to do. In January 1934, Pedro um, led all of those sugarcane workers, the macheteros that we were talking about before, on that island-wide strike. He was the leader of that. Uh, and, you know, they, they, got, they got what they wanted. They got um, increased wages. Um, obviously this is putting Pedro on a watch list, you know, for the U S for the reasons that we stated before, when we talked about that, that, um, that strike. So the U S appointed, uh, head of police, that's our boy, Alicia Francis Riggs, right? From the Riggs bank, the one that we've been talking about here. Uh, he invites Pedro to go to lunch 
and uh, they had a surprisingly nice chat until the very end. Riggs offers Pedro a deal uh, that they would propose the legislation to get Puerto Rico to elect their own governor so that they have a level of, you know, more autonomy, and Pedro would back off on the strike. And Pedro refused this. So this was probably one of the worst things he can do because this kicked off a series of events. He pissed off the wrong guy. Um, not that he was wrong, but this is just what what set him over. Um, it, it began a long and arduous period of surveillance, arrest, and eventually torture for Pedro. So Pedro's Nationalist Party... Uh, at this time, they start creating like a quasi-military force. They called it the Cadets of the Republic. Officially, it was a youth group branch of the party. And at its highest point, uh, they had over 10,000 cadets. They didn't have any weapons, uh, but they did drill two times a week and sometimes in public places, which obviously didn't make people like Riggs here very happy. They didn't like it very much. And so... That's when, on October 24th in 1935, he sends those shit ton of cops to that student rally that we talked about, right? And killed the four people, so one cadet and three Nationalist Party members. That was the Rio Piedras massacre. Now, this was barely mentioned in the American press, but Riggs himself did tell the, uh, the publication La Democracia, which, if you remember, is Luis Jr.'s newspaper, that if Pedro doesn't back down, he would, quote, wage a war to the death against all Puerto Ricans. That's a direct quote, by the way. He was quoted in this newspaper saying he was going to wage war against all Puerto Ricans to the death. Nuts. So obviously, three months later, two nationalists assassinate him, and both of those guys were arrested, beaten, and executed. We talked about that already. And then the Ponce Massacre happens, which we talked about already. And at this point, the appointed governor, Blanton Winship, basically declares martial law and outlawed all public demonstrations, which they then scooped up Pedro and they arrested him and they mocked up a sham trial and sent him to a prison called La Princesa, which is in Old San Juan. Henry, if we do go to Old San Juan, make sure to have me bring you there. It's pretty interesting looking. I think it's like a boutique like a boutique hotel now which is weird uh, but it was a really shitty jail at the time and his sentence was for 10 years for inciting a revolution and eventually they they transferred him to a penitentiary in atlanta when they released him uh in 1947 he was greeted by thousands of puerto ricans when he got off the boat but also hundreds of fbi agents because at this point fbi was fucking everywhere in puerto rico and he gives this big speech in the San Juan Cathedral where he basically continued his fight for independence and the FBI at this point were pretty openly recording him the whole time but everyone was so fixated on that speech that nobody really cared the next couple of years Pedro spent basically being tailed by the FBI harassed by the police everyone who would come into contact with him would get questioned detained ticketed uh, there was this one interesting story where they broke all the streetlights around Pedro's house so that uh, anytime you would go to Pedro's house, you would have to cross the street, like drive past the street and like basically run a red light, even though it was broken. Um, and that would give them the pretenses to pull you over and ticket you. 
So like people stopped wanting to go to Pedro's house because they would just get tickets literally every time. Um, and uh, it, it got so bad that actually Pedro sold his car because he was like, I literally can't go anywhere without getting pulled over all, every single time. And that's not so bad because it gets worse. So, you know, this happens for quite some time until 1950 when all that crazy shit happened that I told you about from last episode. And then they put him in in prison again. And he spent 23 years in prison. Um, and, you know, he was tear gassed in prison. He was beaten. He was tortured. Uh, there, This is hard to prove because the U.S. basically took control of his body and didn't let it, like, like an official autopsy happen. But he was, a lot of the reporters were able to at least corroborate this claim that he was irradiated in prison. They like intentionally irradiated him. <laughs> um, and his limbs got all swollen and like grotesquely, you can see some pictures of him if you just Google it. You know, uh, he was finally released after he, he had a stroke in prison. He was about to die. He was almost paralyzed. He was mute. And, you know, a few months later after they released him, he died. Che Guevara actually um, knew him and uh, spoke about him in front of the United Nations. And I'll, I'll just quote it. Um, he says, Albizu Campos is a symbol of America, unredeemed but indomitable. Years and years of prisons, mental torture, solitude, complete isolation from his family and his people the insolence of the conqueror and its lackeys on the land that gave him birth, nothing broke his will. The Cuban delegation renders homage, admiration, and gratitude to a patriot who has given dignity to our America. Che Guevara saying some pretty nice things about Pedro Albizu Campos. So he was right in that same league. He was regarded in the same league as Bolivar. Um, but yeah, I mean, 75,000 people went to his funeral from all over Puerto Rico. Um, kind of a sad story. And I tell these two stories because they're just so interesting and so different, right? You got this fuck up that, that basically becomes the governor and a puppet for the United States, which, you know, I think we kind of touched on this last time around, last episode, where it was like a lot of people like to make the point that Oh, it wasn't the United States that dropped the bombs. It was the Puerto Ricans that did it. Well, they were all instructed and commanded by the United States. And when they finally had their own governor, they picked the easiest person to control with Compromat to make sure that nothing ever happened to promote and further any ideas of nationalist sentiment in Puerto Rico. And then we have Pedro who was a good student, hardworking, valedictorian several times, fucking wrote the constitution of, of Ireland, <laughs> you know? Sticking up for his people and eventually is subjected to some pretty heinous shit. I'm sure he's not a saint, but I don't know if, if the, uh, you know, punishment was was commensurate with the crime 
No, it's a very sad story. And uh, unfortunately, when you uh, stand up for something like that, when you when you uh, stare at the gun or you stare at the barrel of uh, you know a powerful nation with their interest who's uh, very interested in, in uh, you know keeping their imperial possessions and you are at risk of uh, a fate like that of going to jail for a long time yeah. Well, that's my story, man. <laughs> no, it's it's an incredibly interesting story. And um, yeah, man, Puerto Rican history is, I mean, it's American history, but it's fascinating. I None of this, what we went over today or the previous episode we, went on, we, we did on Puerto Rico, I had any clue about. So it's... Um, it's it's interesting to learn this and then kind of put this into context with just other things that we've talked about with uh, with nationalism and and, uh, and all that separatist movements yeah so in separatist in separatist movements so this is this was a great this is a great episode I sure as hell learned a lot and uh, I hope you all learned a lot as well so do you want to wrap this thing up yeah man. All right. Thanks, guys, for listening to another episode of Bro History. If you like the show, rate and review the podcast on Apple or on Spotify. It is the number one way to support our show. Rate us on Apple Podcast or Spotify. It helps us a lot. And then you can also support us on Patreon. Go to uh, Bro History or no, Patreon slash Bro History uh, to get access to our Slack channel. All right, anything else to add? Nope. Okay, peace.